we're, we're talking about the eternal purpose of God, and we've spent um, a couple weeks just making kind of intro. Well, I mean, the first week was just entirely kind of introductory. The second, the last two weeks had to do with a little bit more some, some general things about the eternal purpose of God. Um, we talked about, we tried to describe the eternal purpose of God in in a very basic summary statement as God, desi- what does God desire? Well, he, he, he created, creation was for something. It was, it was aiming at something, and so was salvation. Saving humans isn't God's purpose. Humans were saved for a purpose. And, and we have to understand. We always have to keep that in mind. There was some. There was like a, a goal, an, an objective in the heart of God before creation and before redemption. And a lot of times we we don't because we're so man centered. We don't really look beyond ourselves, and we think that whatever God uh, does with uh, to, to fix our condition, to forgive our sin, to do whatever. Uh, uh, is is his purpose but really there there was a purpose before there man ever existed or man ever fell or, or or man was redeemed there was a purpose before all that and we're trying to to look uh to look at that i, I remember uh i remember giving that analogy once in the in the not i but christ uh series that just of wanting to go to home depot with my son and he um, you know, I told him to get his shoes on so he could go get in the car. And before he before he did that, he went outside in the backyard and fell in the big puddle of mud. And and then so then I had to take him inside. And this is when he was like two or three or something. So I gave him a bath. That's why I said that. And like I scrubbed him and stuff. And 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 he was playing in the tub. And this is. He, he was, you know, having a, a great time playing in the tub and making a little bubble beard on his face and squirting me with little bath toys and all of that. And, and when we finally got out of the bathtub, he, he had had the time of his life and and he was perfectly satisfied. And as far as he was concerned, that was as far as he, that's that's what he wanted. That's as far as he needed. But I never even, I was cleaning him up in order to get back to what I was originally intending. You know, I was wanting to go to Home Depot with my son, you know. And and from his two- or three-year-old view, um, that's not what he saw. He saw, I got dirty, and now I had a lot of fun getting clean, you know. And that was as far as, as, far as he understood purpose. But I, we're a lot like that with Christ. We're so focused on ourselves, both the... The fallenness and the dirtiness of sin, and then also the the the, the greatness. And I don't want to take away from the greatness of of new life or forgiveness of sin and all those things that are realities in Christ. Those things are great, but they're unto something else. And and that that something else it has to do. We talked about the first we did the first week. We talked about this what I call this corporate thing that God created. I mean, you could call it. There's a lot of things you could call it. You could call it a creation. You could call it a, because well, you call it a creation, call it a land, call it a, a bride, call it a harvest, a kingdom, a church, whatever. It's this thing that God creates that he gives himself to. He pours out himself in life. He gives, He, he you could say he loves that thing. But by love, I don't just mean his emotion. 
When God loves something, it has to do with the full giving of himself to that thing that he loves. That's what love is. Love is this giving of life. And when the Father loves the Son, he gives all things into his hand, is what Jesus said. The Father loves me and gives all things into my hand. You know, The Father loves me and shows me all things that he's doing. Love is this giving. And so God, God gives himself to this body, this corporate people, and, and, and by giving himself to it, by giving his life and his nature and his purpose and everything to that corporate body, by giving himself to it, he fills it up, or he, he wants to form himself in it, filling it up to make himself into, or make this corporate thing into a living expression of himself. So that's what glory is. So we talked about, just, I'm just kind of reviewing to set this up, because there's one primary picture in, in, in the Old Testament that fills up th- hundreds of, I guess it kind of depends how your Bible's printed, but hundreds of, if not thousands of pages that we're, we, need to, we need to understand, and, that, and that's Israel. But, uh, but Israel isn't the only picture of this reality. And it's not the only type in shadow. There's, we looked at this briefly at a, at a creation. You know, God starts off, what's the natural creation? It's a living habitation for a seed. And, and he gives that, I mean, there's pictures of that even in the natural seeds of plants and stuff and animals. But then Adam is that seed that needs to... Um, increase and fill up the earth so that the natural creation becomes a living expression of that seed. Um, then there's the bride imagery that starts right in the beginning too. What is the bride? It is it is this partner that God creates to give to the son to give to ultimately Christ. But in the picture in Genesis three, it's Adam. Uh, but it's something that's given in order to receive the love, the the seed of the husband, and to bear his increase, to bear his name, to bear his family, and and that's the picture there. So something receives of the Lord of Christ, and then becomes the increase of it. Um, the land, the land that receives, it's another huge picture throughout the Old Testament, in various ways. But it, it also starts right there in Genesis chapter two, I think. That uh, of a land receiving a king and being filled up with this king's laws and ways and judgments and statutes and and so that the whole land is filled up with the glory of that king and 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 so all all those pictures are there and there's there's a bunch more we mentioned a bunch more but I, I want to say all that just so that we can we can get to Israel there's one big picture that's bigger than all the other ones that's more involved than all the other ones. Uh, of of this corporate body, it, it just contains so many types and shadows of Christ. It's so many so, so many pictures of God's eternal purpose in Christ and in Christ's body, the church. And and what is that? That is uh, that's Israel. Israel, my son. Now, when people think about Israel, I think generally, you know, we think about an I mean, unless the Lord's really dealt with your heart, you think about a uh, either a, his, a historic people. They had a bunch of laws and a bunch of rebellion and some sacrifices and, you know, a few weird prophets. Um, or you think about uh, the, the present situation in the Middle East, and you call that Israel. And, um, I mean, it is called Israel, but, but, but that shouldn't... What I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to point out is that when you hear the word Israel, or you bump into the word Israel in Scripture... 
what should come to your mind is the way that God defined Israel and the way that God used Israel throughout Scripture. How did God define Israel? Well, there's no better place uh, than Exodus 4.22. A few other verses right around there. He says it a few times, but... Exodus 4.20, you all know the verse, uh, if, you, if you've been in any of these classes before, I talk about it a lot, because it's just, it, to me, if you wanted to, to put on, like, you know, like, in, in those, bo- when I was a kid, I got, I don't know if it was Cracker Jack or a cereal box, but they gave those those decoder glasses that were just those red things, you know, and uh, you look through them, and you can read the, the secret message that said, like, I don't know what it said, it was something dumb, but... Uh, but but I feel like honestly I feel like Exodus four twenty two is is kind of like these decoder glasses that you need to read the entire almost the entire Old Testament with because it is the understanding behind which God is doing God is relating to His people and what is that what is that verse well God says to Moses go tell Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my son my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he might serve that he may serve me. What does that mean? Well, it means a ton, but but in a few words and without getting into a ton of detail right now, it, it means that God saw Israel as and related to Israel as the corporate body of Christ in types and shadows. Now the the, the, the church is the as a body of Christ in spirit and truth. We are literally um, as Paul says, bone of his bone and, and, and flesh of his flesh. We are, we are, we have received of his same spirit. We're not Christ, but we are the body of Christ, receiving of the life of Christ, made, joined, joined to him, uh, and, and supposedly living by him. Him as that life, as that fountainhead as, of, of life and truth and perspective and purpose, all coming out from the head and supposedly, if it's functioning correctly, flowing through the members. Um, so God said, you know, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son. He's putting an identity. He's giving a. He's putting a name on, uh, on what what Israel is, and he goes on to tell Moses that I am. He gives himself the name. I am, and and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to call yourself I am unless God is the substance of everything that he is going to, from that point on, deal with Israel about. He is the door with blood on it. He is the exodus through the Red Sea. He is the tabernacle that they set up in the wilderness. He is the mountain of inheritance that they go up on. He is the cloud that leads them to the promised land. He is the promised land. If you want to know what you know, it's a perfect name to call yourself if you're the if you're the living substance and fulfillment of everything that uh, that that you're showing this people. I mean, and you can go right through it. I'm the unleavened bread, you know, and and I'm the Passover lamb, and 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 he he is those things, and he's going to start dealing right from here. He's he's about to send Moses in. And pull this people out and establish them in a covenant that in every way represents the new covenant. And in types and shadows, obviously natural, physical types and shadows with sacrifices and offerings and feasts and all these kind of things. But he's, but, but he's the I am of all these things. And, and so he's, 
he's defining, and this is this is just I can't even I can't express how how important this is that we understand it. Um, if we can just read the entire Old Testament with this Israel, my son, lens over our eyes, the entire thing will come alive because you'll understand what's the law. You know, it's the nature of that son. It's the it's the boundaries of that son. You know, what's the what's the sacrifices? Well, it's the it's the death of that son and the fragrance of that son and his death and resurrection being lifted up to the father. And what are the wars that you read about? It's the victory of that son over all that is uncircumcised, all that is flesh. And and and, and you know, you could go. What, what's the priesthood? What, what's the priest well it's the it's the relationship that that son establishes and brings us into his father the whole thing is the son and a people relating to god in that son that's it's all that there's nothing that's not that i mean really and when you go outside the boundaries of israel my son you find death israel that's all that they found outside the boundaries of of israel they found death one way or another whether it was through famine or or even outside the boundaries of the covenant which also is christ and so, God establishes right here that before, I mean, the truth is he actually, I mean, he, he well, I'm trying to decide whether I should go back. He, 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 you hear first the word Israel back in the story of Jacob, but I'm, I'm going to try to maybe avoid that today. And, and that's, because that's a very similar picture, in my opinion, to, to this one here, but, um, just because Jacob goes in by himself with nothing but a staff into a hostile land, just like Egypt, comes out bearing a, a, a huge company, a huge increase in inheritance. And it's only when he comes out after having wrestled with man and wrestled with God, he comes out with this huge company and God says, your name's Israel. Just like It's just like this story here. But um, now I know and and and... and Sadly, I think almost tragically, this is a controversial subject in the body of Christ. And maybe not for us here, um, but for, it seems to me, like 90% of the church is, this is a huge deal with a whole bunch of emotional uh, controversy and and, and investment uh, involved in it. Um, and and my desire in talking about it is not at all to stir up issues. I usually try to avoid anything that's emotionally charged, just because um, arguing about things uh, is is very on an intellectual level or even otherwise is is almost never fruitful. It just usually gets people all in a in a a huff, you know, and defending things or whatever. But but I feel compelled to speak plainly about Israel because to ignore this reality would be to ignore it, like the entire Old Testament testimony of Jesus Christ and a people living in him. You know, you can't you can't just like skip over this one like you can maybe like the tribulation, you know. Uh, you, you can kind of avoid, you know, your own your thoughts about the or the millennium. You know, like there's there's a there's one verse or maybe two, but we're in there in the same same area, of, you know, Revelation chapter twenty or whatever. And then there's, you know, you can dodge the, the millennium, but you can't dodge Israel. Uh, I mean, some people can't say you can't dodge the millennium. They think it's the most important thing in the world, which is. Um, 
absurd, but um, Israel is this immense, jam-packed, living corporate testimony of Israel, my son, the body of Christ. And and, and some people hate when I say that. Um, I mean, I get emails and stuff from people that sometimes read my stuff or listen to my stuff, and they're they're literally like fuming about what they call... Have you ever heard the phrase replacement theology? Well, if you haven't, replacement theology is, is it's just this term that people have... It, it, the, the idea of it is that God's covenant and involvement with the church or with Christians has now replaced his covenant and his involvement with the Jews. And this view is hated by most of the church. I mean, like, um, strongly hated for a few reasons. One, because many people think that God has, I've heard it said, has a special place in his heart for, for natural Jews. And that he's doing something different among them, something important, something having to do with his promises to them, something having to do with their destiny as a nation or his uh, whatever eventual, whatever they think he might do with, with Israel in the future. And so to say that that anything that, I don't know, downgrades Israel, natural Israel's importance... I don't think it's imp- I don't think it's possible to downgrade Israel's importance in, in God's mind. But it, but I'm talking about now I'm talking about natural Israel. It is very offensive to some people. Some people actually see it as anti-Semitic. I mean, it's it's really that's amazing to me too. But like it's grounds for anti-Semitism for, for some people because you're saying, oh, God's cast off the Jews, so let's cast them off too. You know, or I, you know that's. Whatever. There's just a bunch of emotions swirling around this this issue. But but the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is that both the non-replacement theology ideas and much of the replacement theology ideas are focused entirely on the wrong man. They're they're and the wrong understanding of Israel. The issue is not that God has switched one group of people to another group of people. That's the wrong understanding. That's very man-centered. The issue is that God has dealt with his son, has had, had this perfect plan and purpose in his son, and that he first showed the world in types and shadows, and then brought it to a reality in spirit and truth. And it's always been Christ. It's, all, it's never really... Ch- the only change has been from shadow to substance. It's not like God was really into this one people group, and now he's really into this one. And this new people group has replaced the old people group, and now God's looking this way. He used to be looking. God's always been looking at the exact same thing. And the cross, it wasn't a change of mind. It was a change of covenant. God never changed his mind. He's still as interested in in circumcision as he was back then, except now it's the circumcision of the entire Adamic man, the entire body of flesh, as Paul says in Colossians 2.11, through through the circumcision without hands, the cross. He's just as interested now in the blood of the covenant. Okay, great. Thanks, Bill. 
He's just as interested now in the blood of the lamb as he was then, except now that blood has a face to it, a name. It's the, it's the, not the pictures of that blood and animals, it's the person. You know, he's just as interested now in the temple of God as he was back in Solomon's day, except that temple is a spiritual, eternal reality. He didn't change his mind. He changed his covenant from a covenant of natural pictures and shadows to a covenant of spiritual substance and reality. And to make the focus of Israel, which people group he's interested in, is to totally take it out of Christ and try to put it onto man. And that's just goofy. I mean, it's, it's worse than that. I don't know a better word for it, but... It's, it's, it's just like everything else, every other aspect of man's religion, it's focused on the wrong man. It's making, it's making humanity the center of God's purpose. And it's making, the, the, the big issue is which human beings is, are on God's good side. Now, I used to be involved sadly, and kind of embarrassingly, but I used to be involved in, because of my because of my desire to see end times events in my lifetime, because of my desire to, um, you know, I don't know, just a bunch of spiritual lust and pride type reasons, I used to be involved in, um, you know, the Israel stuff and, and read a bunch of books and went to Israel and went to conferences and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I'm not like speaking of this as someone who's unfamiliar with it. Um, but it's, it's totally, even if you do believe in natural Israel having some kind of whatever purpose, whatever, you still, ca- you still can't define Israel something other than Israel is my son, my firstborn. So this is going to be, and it's so interesting because it's so interesting because the New Testament is so clear about this. You have to literally ignore dozens of clear scriptures that say what I'm trying to communicate to some extent this morning. Because Paul, you know, Israel isn't a certain people group. Israel is a son in whom you can live if you leave behind whatever people group you you are naturally a part of. Do you know what I mean? The flesh doesn't even let Jews in. I mean, Christ doesn't even let Jews in. Or Chinese or Americans. Christ, I mean, Paul says like four times. In Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave there's no free man. There's no male or female. If, if those natural distinctions don't even make it make the cut. I mean, why in the world would Jewish blood be meaningful in a, in a new spiritual man? How many times? The whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 2. is the, the whole point of it is that God put to death the Jew and the Gentile in the body of Christ. Raised up one new man who is not... Jew nor Gentile, but Christ all and in all. Putting to death everything of the flesh and leaving it there in the ground and raising up out of, the, out of death a whole new man. 
ethnicity doesn't enter the picture in Christ because you don't enter the picture. And, and especially not your blood type or your nationality. It has nothing to do with anything. All natural distinctions collide with the cross, fall to the ground, and never get back up again. You're not going to be an American in Christ. You're not going to be a Ugandan in Christ. You're not a Ugandan in Christ. You're not even a man or a woman in Christ. Try to, you know, think about that. You don't, that those things are, that are part of the world of natural types and shadows and they're appropriate to understand and respect, you know, uh, in, in that world of, of natural shadows in a natural way. But the, spiritually speaking, they're, they're irrelevant. They're, they, don't even, they don't even exist. And if, and if Paul could have said that, I don't know how Paul could have said that or, or, or Jesus uh, any clearer than he did in the New Testament. So... Someone says, someone hears all this and they say, well, are you saying that Israel wasn't special in the Bible? Well, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good question. Yeah, yes, Israel was very special in the Bible, but, but let's not assume, let's not, let's not ask that question with a stack of presuppositions. What is Israel and why were they special? People say, you know, wait, you're taking, God calls them his special people, you know, and God, God says, you know, only you among all the nations of the earth I have done, you know, and, uh, okay, that's true, and I don't want to deny that at all, but their specialness, or special, speciality, I don't know what the word is, specialness was not anything natural that they brought to the table that they provided the specialness was that God used this particular people in a special way God used them in in, in both in, in natural and in supernatural ways to testify of a spiritual and eternal reality that was coming that's why they were special it's not that they had something special that God favored. It's that God chose a specific people for a, for a very special purpose. And that purpose was, as Paul will tell us in uh, Romans, that purpose was to bear the testimony of a spiritual reality. That was their specialness. And, 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 and if that wasn't clear, God made so clear throughout the Old Testament that he did not choose them for any natural reason or, or because they were more righteous or because they were different than any of the other people. In fact, in a bunch of occasions, he tells them, you're worse. You know, I mean, when, he, when he's dealing with them on a natural level, looking at them as, as men and women, he says in a lot of ways, you know, Things like, and, and I'm not, and if someone's going to say this is anti-Semitic too, and I'm not, Adam is Adam, okay? There's no difference. But God speaks of Israel on a number of occasions saying, look, you know, if I would have said these things to this other country, they would have repented, but not my people who have my words, you know? And Or, or Deuteronomy chapter 9 wrote down here, do not say in your heart, this is before they go into the land, do not say in your heart that the Lord has driven them out before you because of my righteousness, uh, 
Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess their land. Because it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It's not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to possess this land. But it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And in order to confirm the oath which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then. He's already said it twice, but he's saying it again. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you're a stubborn people. So, God chose Abraham. He could have chose some guy in Japan. He chose Abraham. And, and, and from this... From this man, and according to his seed, he painted a picture of another seed. And everyone who came to partake of that seed, and, and, and which Paul goes on to say wasn't even ever a natural seed. The seed was Christ, Galatians 3.19. And, and, and the way to become that seed isn't actually to be born of the natural Jew, but to be a spiritual Jew, which is circumcision of the heart, not circumcision of the flesh, and not to be sons of Abraham according to the flesh, but sons of Abraham according to faith. And he explains all of that. But he chose, God chose a man and dealt with this man and all that were in his loins, so to speak, it talks about that in, in Hebrews. All that we're in, just like all that are wrapped up in Christ's loins now, so to, all that come to be baptized into Christ. Now, before that, it was Abraham. All that are in Abraham, joined to Abraham. That's why Jesus talks about, or the New Testament talks about being in Abraham's bosom as a, as a picture of salvation. Remember, remember that where like that Lazarus guy dies, not the other one, not the one that died for three days, four days, and came back, but the other one the rich man and Lazarus, and he's sitting there in Abraham's bosom, looking out, saying, and there's the other guy that wants a little taste of water on his tongue. Remember that story? Why Abraham's bosom? Because that's the picture. In the Old Covenant, Abraham was the father of faith, and in him were all those who were going to inherit the promises to that to that man, and, and, and Christ becomes the fulfillment of that. Um, so... God placed his love on Abraham. What does that mean? That he favored a natural... What, what does that I mean? What does that mean? He liked him more than the other people? He just, you know, Abraham just was, was unique, naturally speaking? No. No, not at all. And Paul, again, Paul just can't say this. We don't want to believe it, so we don't. But it's not because it's all throughout the New Testament. God set his love on that person. God chose a person to give himself to in all of these types and shadows and pictures and promises to deal with that person as a living testimony of a spiritual coming reality. And um, and so it says, I mean, it says in Deuteronomy 10, Behold, the Lord your God, uh, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your forefathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. And people grab that verse and they say, see, he likes the Jews more. And, and that's just not right. He chose the Jews. He set himself upon them. He, he gave them a very unique role, purpose. In the Old Covenant, they were this... I mean, they demonstrated over and over again that their nature was no different. But but they, their purpose was different. Their purpose was to be this living testimony of a spiritual reality. So, 
Paul is asked in, in, in Romans, did the, what, what advantage do the Jews have then? You know, what, what's the advantage of being a Jew? And, and Paul goes on to tell them that there's no that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, spiritually speaking. In terms of their spiritual position before God, there's absolutely no distinction. And he tells them, "Is it a are you, are you better than they because you possess the law?" And then he says, "No, because you break the law." You know, if you possess the law and break the law, you're no different than than anyone that doesn't possess the law and break the law. In fact, you're worse than those who don't possess the law and do do keep the law to some extent. You know, and and so he, he's you know he, he's saying if you read through the beginning of Romans, his whole point is that look, I know you guys have the law and you boast in the law, but you're though you're bo- you're boasting in the thing that condemns you. And and therefore you're on the exact same. Jews and Gentiles are, are on the exact same footing. They are condemned by the law. He says the whole world is shut up under the law, under the uh, the, the the righteous descriptions and requirements of the law, and 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 held accountable to God as guilty. And they all need new life. They all need Christ. And that's then he they says that they all need faith. They all need to receive Christ by faith. So he says that, he says, um, I think I just talked about that, he says that possessing the law doesn't give any spiritual brownie points, so to speak. He repeatedly says that in Christ there is no distinction, there's no flesh. And what did the Jews do then? The Jews carried, again, they carried, a. they were chosen, and it was a good thing for them. And it, and it was pointing to Christ. And, and it should have been, a, a, to some extent, an advantage in the sense that it was in every way pointing to the spiritual reality to come. But they carried a testimony. They carried the prophecies, the oracles of God, Paul says. They carried the promises. They carried the types and shadows of spiritual things. They had a measure of glory revealed in them and to them. The glory of shadows. The glory in things like miracles and tabernacles and, and pillars of fire and, and victories over, you know, supernatural victories over enemies. All of which were natural pictures of spiritual things. But Paul says to be a true Jew or a true Israelite they, just like the Gentiles, had to be circumcised of heart. They had to become sons of Abraham by faith. Let me, let me just read a couple of verses here. Romans 2.28 For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. That's pretty straightforward. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew who's one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit of God, not by the letter, that is the written word, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Meaning the circumcision that God established in the Old Covenant, great in every respect. And he goes on to make this list of things that he, he actually takes a, he starts it in Romans 2 and finishes in Romans 9. kind of takes a long little hiatus there, but first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then uh, he kind of gets off on a little rabbit trail there that lasts about seven chapters, but in Romans 9 he says, I wish, I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, all the promises 
whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. But then he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. I mean, these people were were saying to Paul, well, what about all these promises to Israel? Right? What, you know, are you saying that Israel's not, this is what people are saying today. What about all these promises to Israel? Are you saying that Israel's not going to inherit the, the promises? And Paul says, the promises to Israel are good, but Israel is not what you think. And that's what he says. Uh, but is it? It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all, they all, are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. What's his point there? Abraham had two sons. And, only, and they were both his seed. But only the seed of promise, only the seed of faith, actually inherited the, 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 the inheritance, the blessing, the promise. And those that were of the, of the flesh, of, of, of Abraham's efforts, of, of um, Hagar, Egypt, whatever, uh, did not re- inherit that. Um, okay, i got to wrap this up here. But so, so God's promises to Israel have not failed, is what he's saying. And, and what's his argument? Why haven't they failed? Because is, Israel isn't, isn't a nationality. It never was in the mind of God. It's not now. It wasn't then. What was it? Israel is my son. Israel is a, a collective body of Christ. And, and the worship and service that you see in Israel... Now, Jesus says, has nothing to do with natural places, natural sacrifices, natural services. Because God, why? Because, because, what does Jesus say to the, well, because God is spirit. I'm going to, you know, summarize it. God is spirit and he wants, he's looking for people to worship him in the fulfillment of all those natural pictures, not in natural places and things and actions and whatever. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. We don't understand that little phrase. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Paul says, Philippians 3, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God. We are the true circumcision. Just think about these verses here for a minute. Who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in whether you have a quarter Jewish blood. I mean, people make a big deal about this stuff. I've heard it all the time. It's, 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 you know, I, I wanted to be a Jew. I really did. I was hoping that maybe I was a Jew somehow. Or at least half a Jew. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I mean, back in the day when I thought that God had a special place in his heart for the Jews, I mean, that's just... God himself, I mean, he says, I, he is no respecter of persons. Do you, I mean, I don't know. I, I know this is such an emotionally charged thing, and, and, and I don't want to stir up people and cause fights, but it's just so huge that we understand that Israel, my son, is Christ. 
glorified in a corporate body in which there is no Jew or Gentile. Um, Galatians six twelve. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they may, will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so they, they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. They're both nothing. But what is? A new creation. And those who walk by this rule or by this reality, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. Now that's an interesting statement. What, what, what is the Israel of God there? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with circumcision or uncircumcision. It's a new creation. Totally new. What is the Israel of God? It is... Well, in the Old Covenant, it was a natural picture of Christ and Christ as the life of a people. Christ as the life of sacrifices and offerings and feasts and victories and harvests and blessings and Christ as Christ living in a people, a people living in Christ. It was Christ. What's the, is, what's the Israel of God now? It's still Christ. It's Christ... As the living offering and sacrifice and feast and victory and and harvest and all the same exact things that were in the old covenant now spirit and truth because God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not an old creation anymore. It's a new creation. It's not circumcision of the uh, 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 of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. I mean, we just read all this. Israel, in God's mind, has always been the body of Christ created for His glory. For His increase. In fact, Jeremiah 2, verse 2. Go and cry out in the hearing of Jerusalem and say this, Thus says the Lord, I remember you in the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel then was holiness to the Lord, the firstfruits of His increase. There's a good definition of, of, of uh, Israel for you. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. Isaiah 46:13. I bring righteousness near, it shall not be far off, my salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. For Israel, my glory. So bottom line, and I'm going to stop, uh, God has only ever had one thing in his heart, not two. It's not like there was once one thing and then God stopped that one thing and then he replaced it with another thing. There's only ever been one thing, one purpose that first existed in in shadow and then was fulfilled in spirit and truth. And now that the spirit and truth has come, holding on to the shadows, the weak and worthless stoichian, the weak and worthless elements, principles that pointed to them is futile. It's obsolete. And uh, I'll stop with that. See if anyone has any comments or questions.